If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a mostly listener-backed show, and we are still calling in for more support so we can reach our Patreon goal. To join us starting at a gift of $2, you can head to patreon.com slash greendreamer. Support for this episode also comes from Tonelay, a maker-led community that creates clothing, accessories, and homewares from reclaimed materials. Tonelay centers people historically sidelined by the fashion industry as leaders and creators, and collaboration, reciprocity, and justice are some of their core values that I feel aligned with. Right now, I'm particularly looking forward to their collaboration with Cambodian-Australian designer Natalie Lee, which will be a small capsule of hand-woven, plant-dyed clothing made with regenerative fibers like kapok from trees that grow right around the weaving center that they work with in Cambodia. To check out Tonle, you can head to tonle.com. That's spelled T-O-N-L-E dot com. Again, T-O-N-L-E dot com. And this is when my work in social justice and racial equity really starts to draw from the wisdom of living systems because the practice of solidarity, the practice of interdependence, the practice of sharing resources, the practice of decentralized leadership, you see all of those dynamics in what we call natural ecosystems. Today, we're speaking with Daniel Lim, a queer Chinese Burmese social change maker. He founded Daniel Lim Consulting, a social justice consulting firm that supports organizations to build regenerative and liberatory cultures. And his practice is informed by the wisdom of living systems and the teachings of Black liberation and indigenous sovereignty movements. Daniel's calling in life is to advance collective liberation and heal humanity's relationship to the living world. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Daniel. It's an honor to have you. Thanks for inviting me to speak. I'm really honored to be here. Of course. So you have a multicultural upbringing that shaped the lenses through which you see the world today and really set up the foundations of your social justice work. So I'd love for you to begin by giving us a glimpse into your background that solidified your interest in collective liberation and healing. Yeah. So I am ethnically Chinese. 
My family has direct ties to the Tuaisan region in southeastern China, but my family actually has not been in China for two generations. So my grandparents from both sides, my father's side and my mother's side, moved to Myanmar or Burma during World War II to basically escape the Japanese invasion. And so my family has been in Burma for three generations now. And I was also born in Burma. And so from there, I had my Chinese ethnic background. And there's a lot of Chinese culture that is alive in my family. But we also internalized a lot of Burmese culture just, just because that's where we lived. And so I we grew up in a poor family. We grew up in a very rundown house. And we didn't have a lot of things. We didn't have a refrigerator. We didn't have a TV. We didn't have a lot of basic amenities, but we always had what I now consider to be ecological wealth. We lived in a huge lot and we had a mango tree, a jackfruit tree, several papaya trees and guava trees and countless other plants. And we also had lots of different animals. We had snakes, we had lizards, we had owls, we had birds and ants. And it was really, uh, really diverse, biodiverse place that we grew up in. And my sisters and I, we called it a zoo. We called our home a zoo and a garden because of how diverse biologically it was. And that really shaped my interest in nature, basically. At that time, I didn't really see it as nature. It was just my environment. It's my home. And there was not that boundary of what is human versus what is nature. And at eight years old, my family and I moved to the United States and we moved to New York City, to Brooklyn. And I am still here to this day. My family is still here to this day. And four years after I moved to the United States, my uncles and aunts who had been here earlier, like 20 years, they decided one day to take us on a camping trip. And I just remember loving camping. We went to the Delaware River in New Jersey, and I fell in love with trees, I fell in love with the river, and I fell in love with just the land. It was like being back home in Burma. And all those different childhood experiences really solidified my love for nature and my interest in protecting the environment. And at the same time, I'm acutely aware of injustice, and I've always had this intrinsic propensity for achieving sort of justice and equity. It's starting with within my own family, just navigating the the dynamics and the privileges that come with being the eldest son in a Chinese family. And so these two interests, one in environmental protection and one in social justice, have always been inside me for, for my entire life. And they started eventually merging into real studies in college, where I studied ecology, ecological design, as well as community development, economics, and social justice. And I studied urban planning when I went to graduate school, and then I focused on environmental justice work. And so my lifelong interest in those two things start to merge both academically and professionally. Mm. 
Thank you for sharing that. You've written some really insightful articles on Medium, on regenerative liberation and racial justice. And specifically, we know that anti-Asian hate and xenophobia have increased within the last year due to the first cases of COVID-19 coming from the region of Wuhan, China. But you contend that anti-Asian hate has a history that goes far beyond the U.S. empire itself, and that it also exists separately from the framework of anti-Blackness, which is often used to explain the roots of all other forms of racism. So how would you deconstruct the origins of this Orientalist prejudice? And what questions have you had to grapple with in our modern day discussions on this social construct of race and racism? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump back and forth between the personal and the sort of more analytical. I was born in Burma, and for the first eight years of my life, I did not see myself as Asian. No one in my family saw themselves as Asian. We were Chinese, and then we were Burmese. And we looked at other people based on their ethnicities. They were Indian, they were Thai, they were Cambodian. And it wasn't until I came to the United States and I started school in third grade, and my classmates and my teachers started saying things like, oh, that Asian kid, or you're Asian. And it's those interactions early on that made me realize, oh, there's this thing called race, and I am of the Asian race, because that's what people tell me. And other people belong to other racial groups. People are Black, people are white. And so that was my earliest experience of being racialized when I came to the United States, and it was my family's experience of being racialized. And, you know, this anti-Asian violence that we're seeing right now is not new. It's actually only the latest manifestation of it. And this idea that Donald Trump sort of promulgated about how the virus is a Chinese virus, it's a Wuhan virus, he's just playing into a stereotype that has long existed. He didn't invent it. He just utilized it to his advantage. And I talked about how it's really rooted in this thing called Orientalism, which has been in the mindset of Western civilization for thousands of years. And it's this idea that the West or Western civilization is the norm, is the default, it is the moral center of the universe. And the, the Eastern civilizations, which include both India and China and the Middle East, all those civilizations sort of represent the Orient, the thing that's not the West, the thing that's deviant from the West, the thing that is morally deviant from the righteous Christian nations of Western civilization. And so one of the stereotypes of Orientalism is that Asian people bring diseases to Western societies, and that that's the threat that they always pose amongst various other threats. And so you can easily see that stereotype playing out again and again in history. And this is one of those moments where Donald Trump utilized that existing stereotype that Asian people bring diseases. And whether it's factually true or not is sort of a different conversation. I almost think it's an irrelevant conversation because diseases come from somewhere. That doesn't mean that the disease itself has an ethnic identity, right? So the coronavirus is not a Chinese virus. It doesn't have an ethnic identity to the virus. And so the practice of associating an ethnic identity with a virus or with a disease agent is really rooted in, in 
racist ideology. And in this case, it's really rooted in Orientalism, which has shaped the West's sort of imagination about Asia for thousands of years. And not just shaped the cultural imagination, but also economic and military practices as well. Asian societies are always seen as a foreign threat. And that really fuels a lot of the United States military presence in the Asia Pacific region. So it's a very complex ideology that influences not just this current moment of anti-Asian racism, but also the United States century-long history of dealing with Asia and having a particular type of foreign policy when it comes to Asian countries. Yeah, it Orientalism is really so deeply rooted. If we just think about what we learn in school in terms of geography and maps of the world. And we learn about these concepts of continents, right, which are defined by any of the world's main continuous expanses of land. And technically, Eurasia should be one continent, but it's split into two. So it's the West, which is Europe, and then everything that is Oriental or on the East side, which is considered Asia. Like there is no, based on the official definition of a continent, there's no reason why this should be split into two other than the dominant cartographers at the time, which are uh, Western cartographers, feeling the need to draw this line and this distinction to differentiate people from the East, from people of the West. So it's really deeply rooted. And You share that the common misconception is that white supremacy is the motivation itself, as in white people engage in white supremacy because they believe themselves to be superior or they wish to be superior. This is historically inaccurate, end quote. So if white supremacy is not in of itself the motivation and the basis, what do you think underlies that and sets the stage for this logic of supremacy in the first place? We're getting into that area of intellectual theory where different people, when they read the history of all these things, can have different interpretations. So I will be upfront and say this is my particular interpretation, which is really fueled or informed by both critical race theory and Marxist interpretations of history. And I'm not a scholar in either of those, but I've read enough to form my own theories. And so the way I understand it is White supremacy, we often confuse it to be the primary motivation. And by that, I mean, we believe that Europeans engage in white supremacy because they believe themselves to be superior or they wish to be superior. And that's why they engage in white supremacy. When you look at history, that is sort of not exactly true. White supremacy is a technology, a social technology or a tool, right? And in my writing, I talk about how white supremacy is both a logic and a tool, a power structure. And so what do I think is behind white supremacy? What is the real motivation? I think it's imperialism and colonialism. Europeans wanted to imperialize and colonialize, and they needed a reason to justify their motivations. They needed a reason to justify their imperialist motivations and their colonialist motivations. And so they constructed this concept of race. They constructed the system of racism. They constructed the system of white supremacy as a logic to justify their imperialism and colonialism and to also carry it out. 
And so this kind of interpretation helps us understand how other imperial societies also create their own technologies, their own logics to justify their particular imperialism and colonialism. You know, I am of Chinese descent and China or Chinese society has been an imperial force for over 4,000 years. And they don't use the logic or the technology of white supremacy because that's a recent invention, but they operate by a different supremacy logic, the Han supremacy logic. And so when you think about or when you understand white supremacy as a technology, as a tool, rather than a primary motivation, you can sort of start to see how it really operates. And so that's what I mean by white supremacy is not the primary motivation. Imperialism, colonialism are, and white supremacy is sort of the primary tool by which those motivations are carried out. So, of course, prejudice of all forms exist, this sort of othering or seeing the other as less than, like this exists in all different forms. But when we're talking about, for example, white supremacy or other forms of supremacy, perhaps that's less rooted in something that is innate or interpersonal and something that is more systemic as a justification for some sort of way of political or, or social organizing. You know, once you have white supremacy as the power structure, as a logic that really defines your society, that then sort of feeds itself, uh, perpetuates itself by promulgating a lot of these stereotypes and prejudices and biases. And people that live in a particular supremacist society will internalize all those prejudices and keep that system going. And so when we talk about racial injustice, for example, in my work, we talk about four levels of racism, the ideological level, which is sort of the logic that fuels all this, and then the power structures or the structural level of racism. And then we talk about the interpersonal level. This is where a lot of prejudices and bigotry and biases really come into play in people's interpersonal relationships. So one of your focuses is dismantling supremacy as an ideology, and you do take this beyond white supremacy to see how other supremacist cultures within perhaps more regional contexts parallel that. And you brought up Chinese imperialism as an example, but without equalizing the different forms of supremacist cultures, what are some of the distinctive qualities of these supremacist cultures that can help us better understand them in the modern day society that we're in today? When we understand that all supremacy systems are really motivated by what I consider to be three primary motivations, which are imperialism, colonialism, and then the third one is hierarchism, the motivation or the desire to organize your society around a hierarchy. And so when we understand that those are the three primary basic motivations behind all types of supremacy systems, you can start to see some of the common characteristics of supremacy systems. Supremacy systems, whether it's white supremacy, patriarchy, religious-based supremacy systems, they have this desire to otherize and to say those other people are not human or fully human like us. They do not deserve full sovereignty the way we do. And so once you start to believe that, that other people do not have the same level of sovereignty or dignity as you do as a human being, then that starts to mentally justify for you mistreatment of those peoples, right? 
And so in within the supremacy system of patriarchy, you know, cisgender straight men say, well, women, transgender people, gender non-binary people, they're second class citizens. They're not fully human beings like men are. And so we can treat them in a particular way because that's what they deserve. And so these types of prejudices and logics start to come into play. And so you see that with all types of supremacy systems, this immediate othering and dehumanization of that otherized group. So it feels that around the globe and throughout the course of history, we have different imperialist societies and colonizers that have exerted their dominance and control over other communities and peoples who perhaps had no interest in competing for some form of ownership or domination as inherent parts of their culture and purpose, which means that in any region, it's likely going to be the supremacist cultures that end up being the most dominant because it's deeply rooted in their imperialist and supremacist ideology. And this for me means that the most liberatory and regenerative cultures that we should learn from and uplift that still exist today are going to be the ones that have been the most marginalized and often taken advantage of by those dominant societies. So I have two questions stemming from this stream of consciousness, and I'll start with the first one, which is contrary to supremacist cultures, what do liberatory and regenerative cultures generally have in common? Oh, what a powerful question. Yeah, I think one, we want to look at specific manifestations of regenerative and liberatory cultures just to ground the characteristics in, in specific examples. I think indigenous cultures around the world are often regenerative and liberatory cultures that coexist with colonial imperialist supremacist societies. In the United States, because of how racism has structured our society, a lot of communities of color, a lot of communities on the margins, queer communities, worker communities, working class communities, undocumented communities, those communities are often regenerative and liberatory. Not in all aspects, because we do internalize some of the supremacist dynamics that we are enmeshed in. In many ways, they operate in regenerative and liberatory principles. So one of the most ubiquitous characteristics is this tendency for regenerative and liberatory societies and communities to engage in collective behavior. So to really lean into the interdependence of all of us and to engage in reciprocity. And this is when my work in social justice and racial equity really starts to draw from the wisdom of living systems because the practice of solidarity, the practice of interdependence, the practice of sharing resources, the practice of decentralized leadership, you see all of those dynamics in what we call natural ecosystems, like forest ecosystems. And so we can see those behaviors in human communities that are regenerative and liberatory as well. What happens to a lot of the black and brown communities, for example, during the pandemic, when they have historically been underinvested 
by the state, what do they do to survive? They engage in mutual aid. Mutual aid is a type of reciprocity that is not about charity, right? And so mutual aid is a human manifestation that you can see in a lot of communities of color, poor communities, that you can also recognize as happening in natural ecosystems. And so that's one of the dynamics. The other dynamic is this capacity for generative conflict. Living things all have differences. We have different competing interests. In supremacist societies, we're often told to win, right? There can only be one winner. You have to win at this competition. You have to win your argument. You have to win your debate. And you have to be the one that gets all the resources. And so when you live in a liberatory society, you have a much wider capacity to deal with conflict and to approach conflict in a way that is restorative, that actually heals relationships, that restores trust. And it's not so much focused on figuring out who's right, who's wrong, who's the winner, who's the loser. And so interdependence and generative conflict, I would say, are two ubiquitous characteristics of regenerative and liberatory societies. And as I mentioned earlier, it has been the case that the groups of people with supremacist and imperialist worldviews and values are likely going to be the ones that strive to obtain power as a goal in of itself to then be used to organize societies of these hierarchies where they can solidify their place at the top. And that's how domination works is by subjugating others. So I wonder if it's even possible for biocentric and liberatory cultures to even break through and disrupt dominant supremacist cultures if seeking power in of itself is not even a trait of regenerative ways of being and organizing? What are your thoughts on that? I would challenge that because liberatory cultures have a much more nuanced understanding of power than supremacist societies. So it is actually maybe a supremacist colonial belief that liberatory cultures inherently are not as power sensitive or power aware. And that's one of the stereotypes that we deal with a lot in our work when, you know, we enter an organization that is extremely hierarchical and we say, can we practice decentralized leadership? And we bump up against assumptions about what is power and how does power manifest? And so one Supremacist societies, I believe, have a very narrow, rigid idea of power, where it's really only power over. So the only form of power that they recognize is the power to be over someone else, the power to control someone else, the power to dominate other people, other living things. And of course, that's logical because that's the type of power they like to practice, right? And so liberatory cultures, on the other hand, have a much more expansive and nuanced understanding of power where they practice power with, or in my work, I call it liberatory power. How do you practice power with people, not over people? And so when we talk about fighting for racial equity, when we talk about fighting for social justice, it's not that we're trying to seize power or grab power as if power is limited and there's a finite amount of it. It's more about how do we get supremacist cultures and people who are committed to supremacy to give up oppressive power, to give up supremacist power, and to practice liberatory power with everyone else. So we're not trying to seize power. 
we're not trying to make people give up power, right? And so a lot of the racial equity conversations that I'm often in is focused on this idea of making white people give up power. And I always like to reframe that conversation. We're not asking white people to give up power. We're asking white people to give up oppressive power, supremacist power, and to instead practice liberatory power with people of color. And so it's a very different definition of power. And I think that is the way that we're going to sort of escape the tentacles of supremacist societies and really start to dismantle those systems and to build more regenerative systems. Mm, This is really um, powerful of a conversation. So basically, it's really not about people who are currently marginalized seeking to obtain power in this framework of a linear top-down form of power that currently is practiced within the dominant supremacist culture, but rather it's about transforming the type of power that we recognize and that those currently in the supremacist culture practices in general. So in other words, it's not just about, you know, diversifying the faces of of who's in power within this current framework and hierarchy, but about transforming how we even conceptualize power to begin with. Exactly. And I would say, you know, both are happening. There's this tug of war between do you work within the system? Do you work outside the system? And I think you have to do both to get to that final destination, right? You have to in many ways in sort of the day-to-day have to participate in the system that's already built. And in those systems, you do have to vie for power, right? People have to run for office and that's kind of limited power. Like once you're in that office, political office, you have power and other people don't have that power. And so some people want to work within the system of that type of power structure and other people are trying to work outside the system to build more liberatory power structures. In Precepts of Regenerative Practice, you say the whole is more abundant than the sum of its parts. True wealth is abundant and grows when shared. Only artificial wealth created by greed is scarce, end quote. This statement, I think, is really imaginative in that it unravels the foundational beliefs in scarcity that underlies so much of how we orient and organize our economies and societies today. And it's a really beautiful sentiment that's rooted in the possibilities of what we can co-create through collaboration over competition. And you kind of touched on this earlier, but I would love for you to walk us through your thought process behind this perspective shift that you've made and are encouraging in others. Let's root that first in natural ecosystems, right? If you look at any natural ecosystem, whether it's a forest system, a marine system, or a desert ecosystem, you see that there's only so many sort of mineral resources and energetic resources to go around, right? Carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, and potassium, and all those nutrients. And despite the limitations, the limited quantities of those mineral nutrients, you have such vibrant, diverse, resilient ecosystems. And the reason for that is because all the living things participating in those systems are really building more than what is actually available. So you have these, let's say, trees, and you have insects, you have microbes, you have animals, mammals, and birds, and reptiles living amongst each other. And they're just constantly cycling nutrients with each other. 
on a micro scale and also on a global scale and on a time scale that most humans don't even perceive. And just by doing that cyclical motion of nutrient sharing, resource sharing, the ecosystem as a whole creates more than what was originally there. And so that's the idea of wealth. The whole is more than the sum of its parts and that the true wealth is really created by people coming together and sharing rather than hoarding. And so transfer that, right? So now we move from natural ecosystems to human ecosystems and we talk about economics and what does wealth mean in terms of economics and human human communities. We often think about wealth in terms of money. And in this capitalist society that we live in, we, for some reason, value and look up to wealthy people. We look up to Jeff Bezos, we look up to Elon Musk, and we say those people are smart, they're successful. We don't question how they hoard wealth and how they systematically impoverish the rest of society in order to get the wealth that they do. And if you look at the whole picture, you realize one person's immense wealth leads to the destabilization of the rest of society. And so what if we were to practice a more regenerative economy? What if we were to practice a more regenerative concept of wealth and money so that everyone has what they need and the money just keeps flowing rather than being hoarded in one person's bank account, right? What if the money is constantly being cycled through the rest of society so that everyone is nourished by that money, everyone is nourished by that wealth, and everyone is able to get the resources they need to be a thriving community? And so when we look at what we mean by wealth and, and economies, we have to start thinking regeneratively to make sure that society as a whole is amounting to more than the sum of its parts. And one of the ways we do that is by practicing sort of shared wealth or shared a communal wealth, where the money and the wealth is constantly being cycled through to lift up all parts of the system, right? And this is a sort of a direct mirror to what we observe in natural ecosystems. So maybe one of the challenges is that communities and relationships have been eroded to the point where it drives people to become more individualistic because there's a lack of trust in that, you know, if you allow things to keep flowing, that you're going to get that back when you need it most and to be able to hold this mindset of abundance. And therefore, when people have this fear of scarcity, it might drive people to hoard the resources that they have out of maybe insecurity, perhaps insecurity that if you were to let it go, it's not going to flow back to you when you need it most. I believe that to be true. I think trust is so paramount to this type of culture. A lot of indigenous cultures and, and just if you just come from any non-Western culture, you observe a lot of cultural practices where it's a display of trust. It's a display of faith in the fact that if you give something freely, you trust that it will come back to you, right? And so I come from a Chinese community. I come from a poor family. And when we were in Burma, we had a lot of cultural practices where people just gave each other things in times of need. There was no expectation of tit for tat. There's, it's not a transactional relationship. And people give away things freely, even if they don't have a lot to begin with, because they trust that what you give will ultimately come back to you in your time of need. And so that type of cultural practice 
is, I think, missing in our modern capitalist society where our relationships are often based on distrust. We don't know each other. I can't trust you. And so if there's ever a limited quantity of resources like toilet paper during a pandemic, my conditioned instinct is to hoard it. And it really comes down to my socioeconomic privilege. Do I have the money to hoard toilet paper? And if I don't, then I'm out of luck, right? And so this idea of trust and this idea of engaging, leaning into trust and engaging in mutual aid is really rooted in how natural ecosystems work. And it's also rooted in liberatory practice. And as you shared, your vision of liberatory social organizing and cultures is really informed and inspired by ecology and living systems. And I find it interesting that we often separate the social or cultural from the ecological, as if only human societies are social and have culture, when in reality, we are a part of the greater social and cultural systems of ecology that we've largely just become disassociated with. So I wonder what we've lost by not recognizing ecology as both social and cultural. And on the flip side, what we can learn from the dynamic of regenerative ecology to guide our path from where we are right now with a lot of destruction and harm going on into the future that we want to create. Oh, wow. We've lost a lot, I think. I'll focus on two things. One is we lost a lot of our imagination for what is possible. We lost our imagination of different ways of being, different ways of organizing our society when we lost touch with the rest of the living world. Because when you look at the rest of the living world, you see that different species have such creativity in how they live and how they organize themselves. And humans are not the only social species. For the longest time, scientists thought that, okay, sociality extends to other mammals and then slowly to other animals, like birds. And now we're realizing that even trees are social beings, right? They're just not social in the way humans are social or mammals are social. But really, all living things are social. And they're not just social within members of their own species, they're also social with other species, they're interspecies social. And so humans are also interspecies social in many ways and we continue to be, but we've also stopped being interspecies social in so many ways. We have internalized this colonial view that nature is just this dead thing, this dead planet that we can extract natural resources from. What if we were to remember that the rest of the living world is our kin and they're living things just like us, and we can form interspecies relationships with them. We can learn from them, and we can act in ways that actually help them heal, that can actually help their existence. And so we have lost so much of that imagination, we have lost so, so much of that type of communication, and I think we need to revive that. The other thing that I think we lost Um, when we lost our connection to the natural world, I think is just our capacity to see the unity of all living things. I spoke earlier about this otherization that happens in supremacist societies. One of the ways that we can heal that and to start seeing other living things and even other members of the human species as really our kin is to 
rekindle our relationship with the living world. There's, I think there's always this schism where we're taught that, well, we have to focus on our human relationships first and then our relationships with other species, right? This human sort of centric approach to, or I like to say like, what is the hierarchy or the list of priorities of which problems to solve first? And human problems always come first. Like we have to heal our relationships with each other first and then heal our relationship to the land. And for me, it's often both at the same time. We're not going to heal our relationships with each other completely if we don't heal our relationships with the land. Both things need to happen because both schisms happen simultaneously. And so I think that unity, that interspecies unity, will really help us see all living things, human and more than human, as can. Thank you so much for sharing your inspiring vision and words of guidance. We are nearing the end of our conversation, but I'd love to hold space for you to share anything else that's on your mind that I didn't get to ask you about, as well as your cause to action for our listeners. I would love humans and people to just go out there and form a friendship with a tree or a bird, any non-pet living thing, right? I think it's easy for humans to form a relationship with a house plant or a dog or a cat that they own and raise. It's very different to have a relationship with a living thing that you don't control, that you don't raise, that you don't own. Go out to the streets and just start to have a relationship with the tree on your block or with the bird that keeps visiting your window and see what that's like. And Who knows what each relationship will look like for each person, but I can almost guarantee that having that relationship will really change how we relate to each other and change what we believe is possible, politically possible, ecologically possible. And I think those relationships are so valuable and there's so little of it. A lot of our relationships these days are human-centric, and I think it's a powerful and also very simple practice of just forming relationships that are more than human. What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? I love Emergence Magazine. It is a free online magazine and it is a publication that really presents writing that's rooted in spiritual ecology. And it is the only magazine that I've read that has really inspired me because you're writing really works at the intersection of ecology and culture and spirituality. I mean, that is their tagline. So um, I would recommend that people check out that magazine. 
What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? These days, I tell myself, it's not that serious. Life is a cosmic play, and we're all characters in it, and we don't have to take life too seriously. Have fun, follow your joy, and it's okay for things to be easy. Things don't have to be hard in order for it to be real or meaningful. That's something that I'm learning every day. And so I'm following my joy, I'm following my ease, and I just treat life as as play. Mm. And what makes you most hopeful for our world at the moment? Just seeing all of the local movements and actions that are taking place. We often think that these global, national-level supremacist systems are immutable, and they're not. They're constantly changing, and we have the power to change it. And it starts with local action, starting with, you know, gardens and get-togethers and, and people writing. And so witnessing all of that really inspires me. Well, Green Dreamer, we're coming to a close, but to learn more and stay updated on Daniel's work, you can head to www.dlimconsulting.com and you can also follow him on Instagram at Regenerative Liberation and on Medium at Regenerative.medium.com. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you and have this conversation. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Kamea. Uh, my final words, let's see. Live life to the fullest. It's, it's all you can do. And then follow your joy. This marks the end of this episode of Green Dreamer. To support our independent media platform, starting at a gift of $2, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. Today's musical offering is Spider by John Slater. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for listening in and for your support. And I will catch you soon in the next episode. 